Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Two seconds. He'll get a shot off on the way. Got it! Finds Ward and there's your game winner. On the move, on the way. Tucker will score. Sean Tucker with a touchdown. Gillen. Got it! Aaron Hughes win. Are you serious? Five down. One to go. Syracuse is playing for the national title. It's too long, and Syracuse is your national champion. Who's out? Who's out? Who's out? Who's out? What's up, Syracuse fans? It's Mike McAllister from AllSyracuse.com, part of the Sports Illustrated Network, with episode 31 of the Believe in Syracuse podcast, presented by Bet Online and Hoffman Sausage Company. I am here with Kyle F to talk about Syracuse basketball. And Kyle, we have two more losses to talk about. Oh, don't say that. Fans are taking it wonderfully, by the way. It has been, my mentions have been just roses and daisies and happiness and cheerfulness and uh, rationality. No one's freaking out. It's It's been, been a pleasant few days, I have to say. Sports fans are definitely rational. Um, a thousand percent completely believable. I bet the house on fans being rational all the time, 24 seven, but that's just me at least. Um, it's, you know, it's a rough one. It's been a rough week. Um, after the lovely wild card or divisional weekend we got in football to have to watch this Q's team play feels like a punishment. It was like, we can't I mean, get two great things. We only we can only get one and we got football. We didn't get basketball. <laughs> imagine if you will, because the cross section of these fandoms is quite large mm-hmm. being a bills fan and a Syracuse basketball. Fan. That might that be, is it. A it may have been one of the rough, roughest weeks rough. And, and, you know, Hey, I, I grew up a Syracuse fan. I grew up in the area. I went to games as a kid and, and, you know, now I cover the team. Um, I'm not a bills fan. I am an Eagles fan, but they have broken my heart plenty. And so I can relate. Uh, but we are in, from Syracuse basketball perspective, uncharted territory here. And I think quite frankly, nobody knows how to react. Nobody knows what to do because if you're a sports fan and Syracuse basketball is one of your teams, they were the constant, right? They were the team that you could always count on no matter how bad my football team is, no matter, no matter how bad Syracuse football is, no matter how many you know losing seasons in a row Syracuse football has, if I'm a Jets fan and we're never good, if I'm a Browns fan and we're never good, whatever the case is, Syracuse basketball, I always know they're going to win 20-something games. They're going to have some great moments during the season. They're going to be at worst on the bubble, at best safely into the tournament, and they're dangerous when they get there. That was a given for 40, 40 plus years. It is now no longer a given. Bet Online would like to wish you a happy new betting year as we continue our march to the playoffs and beyond. Bet Online remains the number one spot for all the best sports wagering action for 2022. New year and a new updated desktop and mobile website to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code BLEAV, that's B L E A V, to get started. From football, basketball, hockey, boxing, and UFC, right to your favorite Vegas casino games, don't wait to take advantage of all the amazing offers for 2022. Bet Online is the fastest and easiest way to wager on all your favorite sports. Bet Online, where the game starts. That's hard to cope with. There's no question. But let's get into these last two losses that have led us to this very dark place in Syracuse basketball uh, fandom history whatever we want to call it. We'll start sadness. with a Duke loss. Sadness. Let's call it sadness. Sadness, pain. And um, the the leader of of Otto's army who um, is active on Twitter, he's, he's a funny guy. And he tweets out before every game something to the effect of, I think Syracuse should consider winning this game. And then after the game is over, if they lost, he tweets out a picture of a sad Otto with the word pain. That's all he does. Just pay. shout out, shout out, Jonathan Danilich. We we love we love Anato's Army King. <laughs> he's he's awesome. Um, and and we'll get to um a, a 
couple comments that were made and um, a response that he had to it, which uh, I fully supported his his response. So we'll we'll talk about that a little bit later when we get to um, some Bayheim comments and some other things. But we'll start with the Duke loss. We're not going to spend too much time on it. We're going to kind of focus a little bit more on the Pittsburgh loss and some overarching themes about where this team is at. Um, but Syracuse lost 79 to 59. The game wasn't even really that close. Um, it was a 14 point game at the half and it got up to 30 points real quick in the second half. Syracuse was just never into it. There was a brief moment kind of midway through the, the first half, uh, where Syracuse made a run to cut the lead to one and it looked like they were starting to play some good basketball and Duke was just way better. They're significantly more talented. They're significantly more athletic. If Syracuse is going to upset a team like that, they have to shoot lights out. They missed just about every open look that they got, uh, it seemed like. So it was just, it was a bad game all around. Duke was much better. Duke blew Syracuse out. That's really all I have to say about it. I mean, you didn't miss anything there. As we said, if we upset Duke in this game, that would have been a great win. We did not expect that to happen. I mean, you're going up against some of the top recruits in the country and a very possible first overall pick in this upcoming draft from Paolo Bonchero. It's as we know, it's not going to go well for us, um, especially with how we were playing. And a man will discuss at some point as well. Samir Torrance, that doesn't help. I mean, it's just one big problem after another, this game, as we, we knew we weren't going to win, but Losing by 20 never feels good. You always kind of want to keep it's like a 10-point loss. You're like, okay, we lost by 10. It was close enough. It was a few scores away. But it doesn't help that we shot five for 29 from three and Buddy went one for 10. For those wondering at home, I can shoot that in park and rec. Um, that's my shooting percentage right there. So I shot as well as Buddy Bayheim dude against Duke, which again, for those wondering, is not good. No, it's it's not. Um not at all. So that said, I, I kind of went into the Duke game not expecting much. I came out of it kind of saying, you know, throw that game out. To that point, um, especially recently, that was kind of an anomaly, right? Syracuse had been one of the better offensive teams in the ACC to that point, and everyone knew Duke's a top five team, top 10 team. They're a national championship contender. Syracuse is nowhere close to even being a tournament contender. So you know, that the expectations going into it, I thought should have been very, very low. And it turned out that that, that was the way it, it played out. So then you go into the next game and Syracuse playing Pittsburgh, a team that was seven and 12 coming in. Syracuse had just beaten them by 16 somewhat recently. And the expectation was Syracuse is going to go in, handle their business. Uh, it wasn't a, a big game necessarily for Pittsburgh. It wasn't going to be a big crowd. Uh, there was almost no buzz about it, which I thought gave Syracuse a little bit of an advantage. And you just expected Syracuse to go in there to play a little bit better against an inferior team and and come out of there with a win, sit at 10 and 10, and try to get yourself back on track to preserving the winning season streak. And yet, it wasn't that at all. Syracuse jumped out to an early 10-point lead, and then from that point on, Pittsburgh simply dominated Syracuse in just about all aspects. It was yeah, it mean, was a bad performance on both ends. It was an ugly game to watch all around, and it was just, from a Syracuse perspective, gross. I mean, Mike, just starting off with not even looking at the player stats, looking at just the, the box score. We put up, it was 28 to 24 at half Q's lead. Do you know what happened in the second half, Mike? Do you know what has plagued us all year? And we have discussed multiple times this podcast, not in the recent episodes because it's been better about it, but you know what happened again in the second half? Pittsburgh yeah. outscored us 40 to 25. A second half where Pittsburgh put up points. Jamarius Burton put 17 of his 21 on the board. Pitt shot 50% after halftime. Those stats are misleading, as you know, as we've discussed ahead of time. Three point, they made five or seven, and then it was a weird second half for them. But still, they did that in the second half. So the problem of us being a first-half team and not a second-half team somehow is still here. Even in a weird game like this, 
it still persists that against Duke, Duke put up more than the second half. We don't count that because they are Duke, as we just said. This was rough. Um, and going into the stats, because I, I do love me a good statistic, uh, combining the Duke and Pitt game, which again, sounds bad, but hear me out here. We shot a grand total of 43 for 131 from the field uh, and 11 for 60 from three. Now, quick math on that one means we shot uh, 33% just under that, actually, from the field and 18% from three. Now, Mike, I'm no statistician, even though I just did some stats. Are those good? Those those are not good. Uh, those are very poor. And yeah, it's it, it was it was just a terrible game um, all the way around. And you know, Syracuse only had one player in, in double figures, and that was that was Buddy Bayheim. Um, but I, the first place I want to start is Joe Girard and. When discussing him, I also want to discuss Samir Torrance because Samir Torrance was not available in this game. And I apologize, by the way, if I if I sound a little weird, um, I'm I'm still recovering from from getting covid went through my whole house. So uh, if I sound a little off, that's that's probably why um, I feel OK. It just, you know, my voice is a little off. But um, anyway, back to, to Joe and Samir. Joe had a terrible game. He was one for nine shooting, one for six from three. The basket that he made came in the final 40 seconds when the game was decided. And he had six turnovers, six of Syracuse's 10 turnovers. Um, just just a bad game from him all around. He looked a little bit lethargic. He looked frustrated, um, like he was pressing a little bit, took bad shots, missed the open looks that he got, bad decisions with the basketball, didn't defend very well. It was just a bad game all around. And Samir Torrance, we found out on Monday, is going to be out for the game. And we don't know for how long he's going to be out because he's got an issue with his knee. So when Joe was struggling, Syracuse didn't have an option to turn to Samir and either bring in Samir straight for Joe or bring Samir in and move Joe off the ball and see if that can get him going a little bit, um, which is, has worked at, at various times this year. So the fact that they didn't have that other element to go to, there's someone that can push tempo a little bit and you know give Syracuse a little something on, on both ends, um, that killed Syracuse in this game because of how poorly Joe was playing. I, I think that was as big of a factor as why the game played out the way it did the way that it did as just about anything else. You know, we can talk about not shooting the ball well and several other players didn't and, and all of that. But to me, this came down to the point guard, not playing well. And the fact that you didn't have another option to go to because, you know, Samir Torrance was out and the last game against Pitt, he only played 12 minutes, but he was two for three from the floor. He had five points, an assist, a steal. Um, it, I, I think even something like that at the right time could have, you know, gotten Joe maybe out of his funk a little bit and uh, sparked Syracuse to uh, get them going a little bit as well. But it was, it was, it was an awful game from Joe and uh, not having Samir as someone they could turn to was, uh, you know, you just don't realize how big of an impact he's been having in recent games. It's tailgating season and no one does it better than Hoffman's Sausage Company. Beer Bratwurst, Jalapeno Cheddar Sausage, Kabasi, and Bun Length Chicken Sausage. Add them to the menu with classic German Franks and Snappy Grillers, and fans will go wild. Proudly made in New York since 1879, when you bite into a Hoffman, you experience a little bit of upstate history. Taste tells. Hoffman is a proud partner of Syracuse University Athletics. You don't. And the impact he has also is that he gives just anything off the bench. And this game was the opposite of a bench game uh, in total. Per, per your tweet, by the way, um, <laughs> the, the tweet, I believe, if I can get it correct, was that you scored as many points as both benches did combined, which was a grand, fat, big whopping zero. Uh, Pitt and Q's combined for zero points off of their respective benches, which I'm sorry, I didn't think that was ever possible in any basketball game, but here we are. 
Um, it he provides a spark off the bench, and we've discussed it so far this season that we just don't have a lot of bench options. He is the only one we seem to have have at for any sort of minutes. So not having him all of a sudden means you only have five guys, and that is honestly terrifying, um, especially with who you else have on the bench. Because as we said, we don't have we don't have many guard options off the bench outside of Samir. Obviously, John Bolajak and Frank Anselm are both centers. Benny's a forward. You don't have a guard. And if you want to put Buddy at point guard, he's not a point guard. That's not what Buddy Beheim does. Usually you move him bigger, not smaller. It, it doesn't fit. It doesn't work right. So not having Samir all of a sudden means you have only Joe. And as you said, if Joe doesn't go, all of a sudden you lose your only point guard. And for any team in the nation, that's a problem. And when you're playing as poorly as he does, I mean, shooting for 0 for, 0 for 8 until the last minute or so of the game, that's just not good enough. Um, and you said it as well. Everyone else shot like horrendously bad. Only Buddy Mayheim put up any points, and he had himself a rough game. But it's because he needed to put up points because nobody else was doing diddly squat. Yeah, he had 25 points, uh, but he was just four for 15 from three. He was actually four for 10 in the first half and, and was 0 for 5 in the second. So, you know, as as Syracuse uh, started playing poorly in the second half, uh, Buddy was right there along with him um, from an outside shooting perspective. But as we mentioned, Joe Girard was one for nine overall, one for six from three. Cole Swider was three for 14 overall, one for seven from three. And Jimmy Beheim was three for 10 overall and 0 for three from three. So everyone not named Buddy Beheim was a combined two for 16 from three. That is a whopping 12 and a half percent. That is awful, awful. And Syracuse as a team in the second half was one for 14, which is a whopping 7% um, as, as previously noted. So this is this was just a, a, an awful game offensively all around, and the Joe Girard versus Samir Torrance thing was, you know, I, I think a huge part of that because Syracuse did not have any other options. And, and in fact, at one point, Joe actually got hurt, came out of the game, and Syracuse moved Swider up to the two guard, and Buddy Beheim was point guard for a couple of possessions. It went about as well as you'd expect. Uh, not good, but to be fair, it, it didn't look good even when Joe was in there. So it, it kind of stayed the same. It was it was just uh, rough all around. Rough all around, no question. But another interesting aspect of this game, you know, there there were a few of them. I, I thought Pittsburgh, even though Syracuse uh, led at halftime by four, um, it should have been more than that. And and even when Syracuse got up ten in the first half. It's that should have been more than that as well, because Pittsburgh started out, I think, going one for one for 12 or one for 13, something like that from the floor. And Syracuse is only up about six at that point. Um, Syracuse went one for 14 in the second half from three and Pittsburgh outscored Syracuse by 15 points in the second half. Pittsburgh went one for 14 from three in the first half. And Syracuse only outscored Pittsburgh by four. And part of that was because. Pittsburgh in the first half was dominant on the offensive glass. Um, John Hughley, their, their big center had 18 rebounds um, more than half of which were on the offensive end. So, you know, it, the, the rebounds sort of evened out a little bit, sir. He's actually ended up with more offensive rebounds than Pittsburgh did uh, overall, but it didn't matter because of how poorly they were shooting. But in the first half, that's how Pittsburgh stayed in the game was offensive rebounds, second chance points, more opportunities um, and, and converting on those, on those chances. So that's, that's part of the reason why the, the discrepancy was only four at half, despite the, the poor shooting from Pittsburgh. But one of the things we noticed in the substitution pattern without Samir Torrance was that John Bolajak was the first man off the bench, played 10 minutes, gave Syracuse one rebound and committed two fouls. But it wasn't Benny Williams. It wasn't Frank Anselm. It wasn't uh, walk-on Patty Casey. It was John Bolajak. And no insult to him. I think, you know, if, if he plays well in practice and can provide five to ten minutes of, of game action for Syracuse, I think 
that that's a benefit to the team, but I don't think anyone's expecting Bola Jock to give any significant contribution in terms of points or anything like that. And so the fact that he played 10 minutes and Benny Williams played three, that was a hot topic uh, among Syracuse fans after the game. It was. And the reason is I, Firstly, I understand that Jim Beheim, how he works with practice and how he understands it. And obviously, if you practice well, you're going to play more minutes. But it's at the point where I'm going to quote, um, I believe, the, the well-renowned and well-known uh, NBA player, Allen Iverson. We're talking about practice. Practice. <laughs> practice doesn't mean squat if you can't do anything in a game. You Like Kobe could put up a billion, but like Darko Milicic put up 175 million and no one's putting Darko in over Kobe. Obviously very strange way to say thing to say, but the point is that yes, you can practice well, but if you don't do anything in the game, you don't deserve to play. You could be, I could be the greatest Syracuse basketball practice player of all time. I am not touching the starting lineup. No way. I could go 12 for 12 from three. I should never see the floor. I'm a six foot tall guard who cannot shoot well, but if I'm the best player on that practice court, I'm not touching the court at all. So I get Jim Beheim being like, oh, he practiced well, he's going to play. Okay, that's fine. But if he doesn't play well, he even if he practices well, it shouldn't do anything. And the thing is, Benny played well. So if he isn't practicing well, apparently he doesn't get any minutes at all. It's, it's quite maddening seeing this happen that Benny plays well, obviously not amazingly, but played decently well enough to do have a positive impact on us in some way, shape or form. I honestly didn't see anything out of Jean Boljak. I don't get it. Frank Allenson as well has played. Okay. Better than uh, JBA, but for some reason, neither play more than him in a game where you're being blown out and you need any spark. The guys you should bring off the bench in order if you have no Samir Torrance, it should be Benny and Frank, Patty Casey at that point as well, and then JBA. I don't understand bringing him on, especially, yes, Jesse was not having himself a good game, but he's been probably your best player this season. So it's, you see my point here. It just, it doesn't make any sense. Yes, practice, okay, it matters, whatever. But if you don't see it in the game, I don't care about practice. Yeah, and and here's here's where I come with the Benny Williams discussion. Is he's a high profile recruit? Fans want to see him because of that. And when they don't get to, and the team struggles, if the team's winning, I don't think it's a huge discussion. To be honest with you, uh, if if instead of nine and eleven, they are fourteen and six, right? It's 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 a discussion. It's not an anger-filled discussion, and that which is what it is right now. And it's just it's kind of uh, one more thing to add to the list, right? And especially because of the perception that Jim Beheim ran off Kadari Richmond last after last season because Kadari didn't play as much as he wanted to. Slash, some fans thought he deserved. Um, I, the the narrative that Jim ran him off, I think, is is not accurate. Um, yes, he wanted to go somewhere else where he thought he'd have a better opportunity to start. Um, but my understanding, from what I know, is that you know Beheim has an exit meeting with every player after every season, and um, Kadaria was told that he would come into training camp being able to compete with Joe Girard for the starting spot. And Kadari didn't want that. So he left, um, which is, this is right, which is, that's fine. But Bayhan didn't chase him that. Uh, that's, but because of that situation and, and people saw that the Kadari is a good player and um, you know, he was certainly a contributor last season. And, and there was a lot of, uh, you know, I think excitement about what his potential is that he has potential uh, NBA type potential and now he's not here anymore. So there's, I think, um, part of where the anger comes from is a little bit of fear 
that it's going to happen again, that you're going to have a player with a lot of ability, a lot of upside, a lot of potential, and he's going to leave before you get to realize that and see that in a Syracuse uniform. So that's, I think, where part of it comes from. But we don't see, we don't have all the information. We only have the information that we see. We see Benny Williams playing his minutes going up and down. When he's out there, some games he contributes something. Uh, some games he does not. Um, you know, you look at his last four games, for example, he's got a total of three rebounds in those four games. Now, it's only 19 minutes of action, but, you know, he's, he's got two blocks, three rebounds in those 19 minutes. Uh, he had a game where he played 24 minutes. And he only grabbed two rebounds and committed three fouls. So, and he was two for seven from the floor. So yeah, he's, he's had some games where he's contributed a little bit. He's had some games where he really doesn't do much of anything when he's out on the floor, but the problem is we see that we see the struggles that the team has, why they're nine and 11. We see the two starting forwards up and down in terms of, um, you know, what they give you offensively and then defensively. They're both out of position quite a bit, and that's that's hurt the team. There's no question about that. And that's been a big part of why the defense has been as poor as it has is because of the forwards being out of position um, on a number of occasions. And you've got a guy who is athletic and has a lot of potential sitting on the bench, and the thought is, well, can't get any worse, especially defensively, so why isn't he getting some minutes? Why isn't there something that Benny can do? And I get that, but I have two points. One, and I know fans hate this, but we don't see practice and you can hate that comment all you want, but that's reality. I'm, I'm here to deal with reality and the facts that we know. The facts that we know are we've seen him in games. He's been very up and down. He has shown flashes here and there. But to me, hasn't shown anything when he has been on the floor that says he deserves 20 plus minutes a game, no matter what. I haven't seen that from him yet. And because we don't see in practice, I'd be the first to tell you, if I had access to practice and I saw Benny Williams, and he was playing fantastic, but he's still not playing the games. I'd say, guys, I, I don't, I don't get this. Uh, I'm as curious as anyone. I'd love to see Benny play 25, 30 minutes a game because I want to see him. Selfish reasons, nothing to do with whether or not it's good for the team. I want to see him, period, because the potential and the hype and all that. But without seeing practice and seeing what he does, we don't know. He could be miles away from being ready to compete at the ACC level. And in that scenario, I get the, we'll throw him out there and he'll gain experience. But here's here's the other side to that. What if all of his experience is negative? And what if Coach Beheim sees what he's doing in practice and says, man, if I throw him out there on a regular basis for double-digit minutes against some of these teams that we're playing, that could destroy his confidence. That could make him question his own ability. And that could be a significant detriment to his development. And for better or worse, Beheim has always believed in developing guys through practice. He did it with Jesse Edwards, who we'll discuss shortly. Last year, Jesse didn't play much at the beginning of the season. As the year went along, he started playing a little bit more. And by the end of the season, he was a contributor down the stretch when they started playing better. But there were certain situations that Beheim did not feel like he was ready for, and he didn't put him out there in those situations. It wasn't a, okay, you've played pretty well in a couple of situations. We're now throwing you out there blindly regardless. Bayon didn't do that. And then that little bit of experience that he got, but combined with he had to work his butt off to develop as much as he did this offseason, practice, private workouts, uh, working on things himself, by himself, all of that leads to what we've seen this year from Jesse, which is, a much more uh, capable player, significant improvement, playing 30 plus minutes a game and being a key player for Syracuse on both ends. Um, his 
developmental strategy, Jim Beheim's the way he approaches it, takes more patience, which can be frustrating. I'm a very impatient person, but it's also proven that it's worked quite a bit over 46 years. So I think without having that information about practice, we at least have to, this is not to say that's exactly what's going on. It is simply to say, we have to leave our minds open to the possibility, not overreact emotionally to the situation, but leave our minds open to the possibility that A, Beheim is bringing him along to develop him the way that he, he believes is in the best interest of the kid. And that two, Benny is not performing in practice to a level that would suggest he needs to be out there on the court. So at a minimum, I think we need to at least keep those in the back of our mind as a possibility. Even if ultimately you think that's not what's going on, you have to at least acknowledge that that, that possibility exists since we don't have the information of what goes on in practice. Yeah. That possibility exists. Um, And I will play the devil's advocate to everything you've said. And I will be the fan that is, that overreacts to things and all of that. And and I'm always right. Uh, obviously. <laughs> um, and I'll start with the idea that he's kind of protecting Benny. Um, and that's kind of what you're getting at. Um, I'm all for protecting players and doing it for the best interest of them. But at some point, do you have to think if you're Benny Williams and you're on a losing team that's playing this poorly and you can't get on the floor. And yes, Jim Bay, I'm saying you'll get better at practice and you'll play at some point. But if you're in a losing team and you cannot get on the floor, how that must feel that you are a player on a losing team and you can't touch the floor to impact anything. That's got to feel horrible. If you can't impact anything and you're not even playing on a team that's playing this tragically bad, that's got to be an even bigger shot to the system of I can't get minutes on a team that's playing this badly. This is what what's happening here. That yes, Benny has said he's not going to leave, and I fully like believe him and everything. But the back of his mind, he's got to be like, this is ridiculous. At some point, you've got to have a switch of like, this is this doesn't feel right. Um, you see it all the time with players, especially in the pros. They're like, if I'm not getting on the floor on a losing team, I'm going to go somewhere else. It's it's a problem, and. Added to that, it feels like Jim Beheim to an extent sometimes is being a little bit naive that, yes, it has worked with getting players up through practice, but at some point you're hitting the extreme, which is leading to tanking. And obviously, I'm not saying Jim Beheim is tanking and he's not intending us to win it all, whatever. My point is that if you know we're not playing well and you're not willing to at least try it feels like you're going to the point of, okay, well, I'll live and die about whatever happens. And in professional sports, this gets a coach fired. This gets any coach fired if you do this. I mean, look in New York. Joe Judge snu- uh, tried a QB sneak from his own like five-yard line. The Giants said at that point we had to take a change and fire him on the spot, essentially. It feels like Jim Beheim is trying to sneak from his own 10-yard line right now. That he's saying, we're going to live and die by the starting lineup plus Samir. And we're not currently with Samir because he's hurt. So he's saying, we're living and dying by this five-man rotation. And I'm sorry, that is both naive, irresponsible, and horrible coaching. Yes, I get it. Jim Beheim is a great coach. But anybody and their mother could see that as a disaster waiting to happen. And we have seen the disaster it is this season. We lost to Pittsburgh, who we just beat by 16 points. We just lost them in one of the worst games I've seen us play in a long time. We put up 50 points back-to-back. We scored more against Duke. The Duke Blue Devils, a team that is really good at basketball. We scored more against them than we did against Pittsburgh. We are 9-11. and we, need, we have 12 games remaining if you include the ACC tournament game. We need to go seven and four in the regular season. And then if we lose the AC tournament, then we are sitting at that elusive 500 spot. I don't expect that to happen anymore. It is at the point where it's just, we're hitting this extreme that at some point you go past the point of no return. 
I think we were well beyond that now. Obviously, our moods keep swinging game to game, but it's getting to the point where we've been like, oh, we'll play Benny a little bit more. We'll give some more minutes to Samir. Hopefully, we'll bring them on. Maybe Frank gets more minutes. Jesse's playing really well on offense. Oh, even Beheim was saying Jesse's one of the best centers in the conference. He doesn't want to trade him for anybody. But that's all fine and dandy. But when you can't put up 55 against Pittsburgh, who is notoriously bad, and who you just raffle stomped by 16, you're hitting a point where it's just, it's not worth anything. And you're submitting yourself to being a losing team. And the problem is we haven't lost with Jim Beheim before. We're so used to winning that when we're not winning, it becomes this extreme. We're like, this is bad. We're not even mediocre. We're worse than that. And we expect wins. Jim Beheim expects wins. But if you don't try and win, this is what the result is. And as a fan, I don't want to see that. I don't want to see my team have only five players play and play as poorly as we are. Try something new. Even if it's Patty Casey, give me something. If you know Joe's not playing well, give a guy minutes. And you can't replace Joe with a center. That's not how that works. Buddy can't play point guard. Put on whoever you else, whoever else you have. Yes, Samir's not there. Give Patty Casey a minute. At this, like, if you're if you're still winning the tank, it can't hurt. It's it's maddening seeing this happen. And it feels like Jim Beheim is resorting to us losing and is cool with that. Yeah. So uh, a couple of, of response to that. First of all, the um, point about Benny not getting minutes on a bad team. It's, it's a valid point. It's a valid concern. I, I honestly don't think that it's, it's Beheim protecting Benny. Uh, I just, I think that that's, that's at least a possibility. That, that that's there um, is is really my only point there. But but yours your point is is certainly a, a valid and, and a logical possibility as we discuss him. As far as this season and Jim Beheim and the program and, and all of that, let's be real. This is rock bottom for Syracuse basketball for the last forty six years. It is the single worst moment of the Jim Beheim era. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about that. That's that's not even debatable among the most optimistic fan. I've been called a homer and optimistic and Bayheim apologist and many other things uh, based on my back and forth on on Twitter and um, in other places. And the one thing I'll say is just because I don't go over to the he deserves to get canned right now immediately, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And I say, isn't it possible that the Hall of Fame coach is thinking X, Y, Z? That doesn't mean that I'm A, blindly defending, or B, a Bayheim apologist. I'm simply trying to steer away from the extreme, bring the conversation back to the middle, and discuss some reasonable possibilities of what could be going on. That's my modus operandi when I'm having these, these discussions. But there's no question about it. It's the worst, worst point of the Jim Bayheim era. So the discussion around Beheim's approach to this season, you feel like in some regards, he's between a rock and a hard place, right? There's, there's issues with the roster, issues with the roster makeup. I think the players that are starting for Syracuse, you look at Joe and Buddy and Jimmy and Cole and Jesse, I think each player individually is a good player. I just think the composition of all of them together is just a horrible makeup because their strengths don't complement each other enough to balance out some of the weaknesses, right? Like you can have, we saw it last year, Buddy Beheim can be your starting two guard on a team that goes to the Sweet 16. Your starting backcourt on a team that goes to the Sweet 16 can be Buddy and Joe. But last year's team balanced that out with even though not as good as shooting and, and some other things is what they have now, but athleticism, rebounding, better defense at the forward positions. And you wonder if you could take this year's Jesse, put him on last year's team, how much better would last year's team have been? Oh, they'd be um, amazing. Right. So, you know, that's the roster makeup is, is certainly worth, um, 
you know, criticizing to, to some extent. I just think um, Bayheim goes in every game trying to win that individual game. Um, he doesn't play guys just to play him to get them experience. That's not how he's ever operated. Um, people are welcome to be critical of that. Uh, I certainly understand that. But, you know, I, I, I don't know. I just, I understand that it's, it's the low point, but um, you know, there's, there's been a narrative that because of the low point and because of how bad it's been this season, that fans should protest by not going to game and supporting the team. Um, that conversation I've seen out there and um, your, uh, your boy with, with Otto's army there is um, he responded to a tweet that I saw that said something to the effect of, I hope no one goes to the games and there's few, very few fans. It was less than 10,000 fans at the Wake Forest game to prove a point to Jim Behan that this is unacceptable. Um, I don't know how anyone could follow Jim Beheim for 40 some odd years or even for 10, 20 years and think that Jim Beheim looks at a nine and 11 team that's wasn't competitive against a bad Pittsburgh team and says, yes, this is acceptable. He is as competitive a person as there is in the game. He doesn't want to lose. He's trying to win every single game. And some people have faulted him for that, that he doesn't spend enough time trying to develop players and getting them in-game experience and instead is too focused on winning that one individual game. That hasn't changed. He's still trying to do that. He's still trying to win every single game. He's not purposely trying to lose. You don't need to send a message to him to say losing is not acceptable. I, I just think that that's counterintuitive. I think that hurts recruiting. I think it makes the fan base look bad that, you know, you're good for 45 years. You have one bad year and all of a sudden you all turned your back on the guy that built the program to what it is to create the expectations that you have in the first place. I, I just don't think that that's, that's a good look. I don't think that's the appropriate response. I think the criticisms are fair. Voicing the criticisms are fair. Voicing the frustrations are fair. I don't think it should go to the point of personal attacks and insults on any of the players or the coaches. I think that goes too far. Um, I've seen a lot of it go too far. And I think saying we are no longer supporting the program is, is too far. Now that's, that's different than if you're, you know, the third, second or third year in a row of this and saying like, all right, I'm done. But you know, the impact that all of a sudden the first, the optics of the first year and 46 years of it being a bad team you suddenly deciding not to support the team. What if Syracuse wanted to bring some recruits up to campus this, this weekend for the Wake Forest game? They had some elite 2023 recruits they wanted to bring up. What if they did? And now they're saying, you know, the recruits get there and say, no one's here. I don't, I don't want to come, come to this. They don't support the team. That hurts recruiting. Now all of a sudden you're saying, well, Syracuse isn't getting, getting good enough players in. Well, you can have an impact on that. It's not the end-all be-all, but it, it certainly has an impact. Syracuse football has going to have three or four recruits on campus this weekend for official visits. They're going to go to the basketball game. You could negatively impact the, the football team's ability to get some, some good players. So I, I understand the frustration. I understand the need to the, the reaction to just say, I'm done with this. Not until you get better. But I just, I just don't think that accomplishes anything. And I think at a minimum with what Bayheim has built over 45 years, he deserves the support for the rest of the season. I think the players they're, they're trying, even if they're not very good, they deserve the support for the rest of the season. And if Bayheim wants to come back for next season and continue to coach, given what he's built for 45 years, my personal opinion is that he deserves a chance to try to turn that around. Uh, we'll, we'll see whether or not that happens. That's where I stand in all of that. I'll let you respond to my comments before we get into uh, some things that uh, Jim Beheim said about Jesse Edwards uh, before yeah. we start looking ahead. I mean, I'll start with the idea of fans not coming to games. I think that's dumb. The only time, personally, it's acceptable to do that is in a professional sport. That is the only time you can do that. 
in college sports, you can't because in the pros and it's really big. I'm a huge soccer fan. It is really big in the world of football, where if your team is playing poorly and you're going down the divisions and the owners are doing nothing, you protest the games. You don't go to them because all of a sudden the teams look at it and say, okay, we're losing money. We need to change something up. And it forces their hand. It's not the same at a college. It's just not at, like monetarily the exact same. That's not how this works. Protest Q's basketball. Okay. They made money from football. They get money through people coming to Syracuse first classes for to be a student here. Like it's a very different realm of trying to prove a point. It doesn't work the same in college. That's not how this should be done. And also, as you said, it hurts recruitment. It hurts everything else in terms of football recruits and basketball recruits and getting people to come out to games. It's just not a good idea. And all of a sudden, if you drop them, okay, but there's still more fans who are going to come to the games and students are still going to go to the games because we want to support our school. The big thing is students have school pride. Even when the team is doing poorly, we're still going to support them. So you're going to shout at students and say you shouldn't go to games? That's dumb. That's a, it's, it's, you're leading yourself down a rabbit hole. You're going down into the, you're doing yourself a grave and it's, you're never going to get out of it at this point. Um, and then talking about Bayheim and the season as a whole, I just think to an extent, going back to something I said, is that he's being a bit naive. And I think a part of the uh, naivety is in the recruiting hemisphere now and how it's working in terms of recruits and the G League Ignite and going to the overtime elite and all these other different avenues to go to play NBA basketball. I think you look at the Dukes, the UNCs, um, you look at other programs that are that high up and they don't get hurt as much by this, that yes, you've seen a lot of players like Jalen Green, for instance, went to the G Ignite amongst, I think it was him, Jonathan Kuminga, and I believe Moses Moody went, or he may have been in Arkansas. So it was the Kuminga, Green, and someone else went to the Ignite and then Green went number two in the draft. And you say, okay, this is going to hurt Jim Beheim. And we saw it a few years ago that I heard Jim Beheim was with Darius Basin. He was the first person we saw that last minute, it felt like decommitted from Syracuse, went to play. Um, and I believe it was the G league as well. And then, or Simon signed a deal with, I believe new balance. And then went to the NBA is now playing with the Oklahoma city thunder um, was drafted first round somewhere. And that happens, and then you look at the more recent person to depart from the recruiting class, which is Dior Johnson, who is the bigger name, was a stud, top one of the top players in the upcoming class, and he opened up his recruitment again. He recruited him. He, Dior recruited way too early, and Dior has had problems with transferring schools left, right, and center, so I don't want to say it's just Jim's fault, but it feels like to an extent, and as you said, the roster makeup isn't good. It feels like Jim Beheim kind of at some point bet on Syracuse being Syracuse. And this might be wrong, and I'm cool with that being wrong, but it feels like he bet on Syracuse reputation. And yes, we're great, but we're not Duke. We're not UNC, especially when it comes to NIL money. We're not Duke. We're not UNC. We're not even USC. We're not any of the schools who can give you more NIL who can do this, that, or the other, it's just not going to work. And it feels like he kind of bet on Carmelo and on Devendorf and on the guys who won. And he bet on Scoop Jardine and other players who have been great in recent years. Tyus Battle recently as well. Elijah Hughes is playing well in the NBA. And he bet on that. And he kind of took the pedal off the gas a bit. And he got players who were good, but didn't fit because I think he, and this is, again, this sounds strange and I'm very off base in what I'm saying, but he bet on them and himself and everything working out just fine because he's won all these years and it's not. And a tiger doesn't change his stripes. And this is where it's coming back to bite him. And that's the amalgamation of random thoughts I have running through my head. I'm sorry if any listeners had to deal with me. Uh, spewing my brains out. I am so sorry for everybody. No, that, with with the roster makeup. Listen, this is 
this is an adjustment I think the program has to make with the way that that college basketball is now with, um, you know, it was one thing to adjust to players leaving early, but now you have to adjust to players leaving early in addition to leaving your program through the transfer portal, because part of what makes what had made Syracuse as great as it was, was not only, you know, getting the, the really good players, but also the zone part of what has made the zone as good as it is, is you have experienced players who have been in the program for a couple of years, you know, mixed in with some first year players, you know, on occasion or a transfer on occasion. But, um, you know, you had guys who would learn the zone and be familiar with the zone and, and sometimes behind the scenes and sometimes not, but you would always have guys that were experienced with it. And the last, you know, couple of years, and then, into this year, especially when you have as many players that ordinarily would be back, Kadari Richmond, uh, Quincy Garrier, for example. Um, but because they've got that option to go to the portal, instead of having that continuity and having guys that are used to, uh, you know, even Alan Griffin, he left to go pro. He wasn't a, an NBA prospect by any means, and he left. Well, what if all of those guys come back and instead of Swider, Jimmy and Samir, you have Kadari, Quincy and Allen? You know, I mean, regardless of how the lineup ends up working out and who starts and what the rotation is and all that, your your lineup is significantly more athletic. It's significantly more experienced within the zone, Um, even Robert Braswell, who left. So the ability to develop guys over a couple of years to get them ready to play the zones, the level you need. It's much more difficult to get guys to do that now, which I think is part of, you know, the issue with, with the way that the roster was made up for this season. So I do think there needs to be an adjustment to account for that to some extent, what that is. I have no idea, but I, I think that needs to be looked at for sure. Um, but, but before we, we take a look at what's ahead here, I want to get into um, the the comments made by Jim Beheim about Jesse Edwards, because I think that there is a portion of this quote is being taken and run with and saying, look at Jim Beheim throwing a really good player under the bus. He's chastising him and saying he, he will never get better. And I think it's important to read the entire quote. I have the full quote in its entirety. And I'm going to give you how I took the quote, which is a lot different than the way that other people are interpreting it. I listened to the press conference live. Um, I did not take it the way that that seems a lot of people are, but I also heard the entirety of the comment. And I think a lot of people are just seeing a little snippet of part of the quote and it's being taken, I think, without the proper context. So here's the quote. I felt from the beginning when he came to Syracuse, It would take him three years, him being Jesse Edwards, it would take him three years to be able to be a contributor. We need him to do more, but I don't think he's capable of it. I think he's gotten better, but when he catches the ball down low and tries to make a move, he can't even get a shot up. He literally can't get a shot up down there because he gets bumped and and he just isn't strong enough. He's a good player. If he were strong, he'd be a really good player, but the physical teams are not going to let him get to where he wants to go. And he's got to get better. It's as simple as that. He's got to get strong in the long run. So I took that when I first heard it as saying, um, again, he mentioned it multiple times. He's better since last year. He's a good player, but he's not a finished product. He's still a developing player. He's still only a few years into playing basketball at all. You know, this is not a game that he's played his whole life. So there's still a lot of development and a lot of fundamentals, and he's still adding strength and weight to his frame and all those things. So he still has development to do, and he can still be better than what he is, even if he is good right now. With the comment of he needs to be better, we need him to be better, but I don't think he's capable. You know, he... I didn't take that as he's saying he has no chance of being a better player than what he is right now. I took that as him saying, listen, we're not very good and we need everybody to play better, to have chances of, to win. 
That includes Jesse Edwards. We need to get more from him in order for us to have chances to win. But he isn't at a point where he's ready to give us more than what he has this season. But he said he's good. He's improved. So he's still giving them a lot. He's just not capable of being a guy that's going to give you, you know, 24 and 12 every single night, which if Syracuse got that from him every single night, the record looks a little different. I think I, that's kind of how I took it. And with him saying, you know, he needs to get stronger and he's getting bumped to whatever. I took that as that's the next step for him. That's how he goes from a good player to a great player getting stronger so that he's not getting bumped around down there. And, and it gives him the ability to, you know, make shots through contact and um, not let physical players bump him off the spots he wants to be. In. So I didn't take it in the, he's throwing Jesse Edwards under the bus. I took it very much as an honest assessment of Jesse's improvement, but that he's not done improving. And also a referendum on what this team is that it's not very good and they need somebody to step up. And that would potentially include Jesse Edwards that they could, they kind of need more from him, but because of where Jesse is in his development, he doesn't think that Jesse is capable of being a guy that can carry a team when other guys aren't playing well. That's how I took it. That's clearly not how a lot of other people took it. Um, Perhaps the truth is somewhere in the middle, but knowing my experience from listening to Bayheim post-game press conferences is yes, he says things about players that some people don't like. I get that. Uh, But he's, he's honest to a fault, but based on what I know of the way that he says things, that was very much in line with the way that he made his comments about Jesse Edwards and Kyle, I'll let you react to that. Yeah. I mean, I agree with you. I don't fully understand where people are coming from in terms of saying, Oh, he just isn't good. And Oh, he's recruiting for the the future, not for the now. This is a problem. What have you, whatever. But in my eyes, looking at it, it's perfectly fine. He's, as you said, he's being honest, which yes, he is honest to a fault sometimes, but you should be able to say a player is bad and also saying a player is great. And he's been saying Jesse Edwards is a great player. He has said to us, Jesse Edwards is a great player. So he also should be allowed to criticize him. You're allowed to do that. He's being honest. As you said, it's perfectly fine to be honest. And it's, as you said, Jim Beheim. That's what he's going to do. Any fan reading the first line and saying that is for every player is wrong. That obviously I take it with a bit of a, I just take that kind of with a grain of salt and saying that he's recruiting everyone for three years down the line. Yes. It doesn't make me feel good. It's not a great thing to ever really say. But he's not wrong in saying Jesse's going to get better in three years. He's not wrong. Could he have said it in a bit of a better way? Yeah, but he said it. He's going to live with it. If if anyone can live with a comment, he says it's Jim Beheim. He'll he'll live with whatever he says. He'll be fine. He knows that. Um, he could have said it in a better way, but he's being honest. He's being true. He's being legit. This is what Jim Beheim feels, and, and he's not wrong. If you were to say right now. Jesse Edwards played a great game and he looked really good right now in this game against Pitt. He'd be lying and that'd be way worse. I would try to even be honest like this than anything else. And Edwards is going to hear it. He's going to say, okay, as you said, I need to get better and bulk up and get stronger to be able to take contacts, make buckets, to be a better rim protector than I already am. All this jazz. So that's my reaction to it at the least. Yeah. And Bayheim, he's not going to say anything in those post-game press conferences that he's not going to say to the player to his face or hasn't already. Um, I mean, that's, that's reality. So I, I don't think anything that he's said there as far as he needs to get stronger, et cetera, isn't stuff that he's communicated with Jesse Edwards on multiple occasions. And I think it's important to note 
when you're discussing this quote and whether or not he's throwing Jesse Edwards under the bus, I think it's important to include the full quote. And I also think it's important to note that he did say in that same quote that Jesse has gotten better and that he's a good player. And, you know, he said just a week ago on a local radio show that Jesse Edwards is better than 90% of the centers in the country and he wouldn't trade him for anybody. He's been overly complimentary of Jesse Edwards all season. So, you know, I think that, I think people need to relax a little bit on that, but that's, that's just my opinion. Let's, let's look at what Syracuse has coming up and how they go about trying to turn it around for the rest of the season. I, I think turning it around, the answer is simple. Syracuse is, ne- is not going to become a great defensive team all of a sudden. They need to be somewhat decent on defense, and they need to play much better offensively. Yes, they lost to Pittsburgh. Yes, Pittsburgh shot 50% in the second half. Syracuse didn't lose that game because they didn't play good defense. Syracuse lost that game because they couldn't shoot. They scored 53 points. They held Pittsburgh to 64. You hold a team to 64 points. This team scoring almost 80 a game coming in, that, that's, a, that's a game you should win. Pittsburgh only scored 61 against Syracuse in the first game. They scored 64 in this game. It's not a huge difference. The difference is first game, Syracuse shot well. Second game, they didn't. Syracuse needs to get better offensively, get back to what they were earlier in the season. Now, here's interesting. Syracuse is playing a 17-4 and Wake Forest team in the Dome on Saturday. Wake Forest is 17-4. and They recently blew out Georgia Tech by 16, North Carolina by 22, and Boston College by 30. Wake's only lost in the last, let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight games is to Duke by 12. They, they, they blew out Florida State by 22, squeaked out that win against Syracuse when the refs blew it at the end of the game, lost to Duke, then beat Virginia by eight, and then those three blowouts that I mentioned over Georgia Tech, North Carolina, Boston College. They're 17 and four. They are seven and three in the conference. They're a half game back of first place. And the ESPN matchup predictor has Syracuse at a 50.3% chance to win. You can tell me anyone in the fan base thinks it's even a 50 50 proposition right now. Heck no. No, but this is the funny thing though, right? Is despite, <coughs> despite all the issues, excuse me, that Syracuse has had, and despite the inconsistent play and losses and everything else, Vegas and the matchup predictors have been overly complimentary about Syracuse's chances in a lot of these games. But Mike, I think a part of that for this game, at least, is that uh, sports books are expecting two of our esteemed guests that are coming to this game, Giannis and Thanas Tedekumpo, to play for Syracuse in this game. I think that's part of the problem here is they're expecting them to play. But I don't know what Giannis's uh, eligibility looks like. And Thanasis, if they could play, I mean, I'll give him, we'll give him Mello's jersey if he, want, if he wants it. I mean, bold prediction if Giannis plays, Syracuse is going to win by a lot. I'm just going to say, I, you know what? So. I would agree with that. Um, I also wouldn't be shocked, though, if we somehow lost that game with how we're playing. <laughs> There is always an outside chance. Giannis, Giannis comes in, goes makes 0 for a bad, 17. Giannis comes in, makes a bad rotation of the zone. Beheim pulls him out and yells at him, sits him down. Hey, man, if he doesn't know how to run the it. zone, I don't trust him. Love it. Love it. So Syracuse has a Wake Forest team that, that they they should have beaten up at, at their place coming up on Saturday. Then they go play at NC State, who is 10 and 10. Um, you know, NC State is... Uh, losing to Notre Dame right now. They recently beat Virginia, um, but lost to Virginia Tech. Lost to Duke by almost 20 points. Beat Louisville. Lost to Clemson. Very up and down team. Not that dissimilar to Syracuse. So, yes, it's on the road. It'll be tough. But that's that's not a game where you're overwhelmed by the opponent. Following that, you have Louisville, who just fired their coach midway through the season. Uh, Louisville's 11 and nine. And then two of your next three games after that are eight and 11 Boston college. I mean, 
if, if you're going to turn it around and get things going at all, this is, this is the time to do that because after this Wake Forest game, you've got four or five games in a row of teams that are right in a similar position to you are in the ACC standings and in the overall record. So you figure out a way to pull off this game against Wake Forest, and there's a chance, even though I'm going to get killed for saying this, there is a chance that you could start to, to turn things around and, and get things rolling a little bit. Yeah. And turning around, getting things rolling. And you look at firstly, the record of Jim Beheim, which we've discussed a billion times. And I said it earlier, we have 11 regular season games left. Plus assuming we lose the ACC game, assume we lose the ACC game the tournament game. We have, we have to go seven and four here on out Duke and UNC. Let's count those as losses. We have to go seven and two. If we lose this game to wake going seven and one, feels like an impossible feat. I'm I'm sorry, but I'm going to be a realist here. But all of the teams we're playing outside of Duke, UNC, and then Wake and Miami, who Miami's our last game of the season, that, that end stretch there with Duke, North Carolina, and Miami is not going to be fun. Outside of those three games, all the teams are sitting around 500. So there's a shot. There's a chance we do this. We somehow pull the cat out of the, we somehow pull a miracle out of thin air, but it, you need to start with this win. This has to be a win. If you do not win this game, in all honesty, I don't see a way you get uh, to stay 500 at that point. If you're nine and 12 uh, heading to February, you're doomed at that point. Yeah, You'd almost have to win your next seven games at that point, honestly, but um, you know, They've, they've only got themselves to blame for the situation they're in. So it is what it is, but that'll do it for episode 31 of the Believe in Syracuse podcast presented by Bet Online and Hoffman Sausage Company. I'm Mike McAllister for Kyle F, and we'll see you next time. Peace. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.